Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Menendez. In a moment, we'll hear from the man at the centre of the row over the mass mining of data belonging to Facebook users. And later in the programme, we'll hear from a Palestinian gynaecologist who lost his three eldest daughters when an Israeli tank shelled his home in Gaza, but who somehow turned tragedy into an appeal for reconciliation. My daughters who are asking me, what did you do for us? Did you forget us? I say to them, I will never forget you. I am determined to keep moving. The tragedy is there. The tragedies are not the end of our life, and we must not allow tragedies to be the end of our life. And thanks God, we succeeded. That's coming up in about half an hour. Plus, police in Texas believe the man responsible for planting a series of bombs is dead. Uh, We'll have an update uh, from there. But we start with a row that's essentially about how our personal data is used in the digital age. At the centre of the storm, Facebook, with its 2 billion users and vast revenues, and a small consultancy, Cambridge Analytica, that's accused of misusing the data of millions of people, perhaps to try to influence the outcome of the 2016 US presidential election. Last night, its CEO was suspended. But there's a third player in all this too, a Cambridge University researcher called Dr Alexander Kogan, who created the app that harvested all that data in the first place. Facebook says he violated its terms of use by passing it on to Cambridge Analytica. Needless to say, he has a different version of events. And for the first time, we can hear that. He's been talking exclusively to the BBC's Michelle Hussain. First, how did he collect people's information? Users go and authorize each app to access certain data. So things are very public about you, such as your name, age and gender, and then certain things that maybe just your friends can see, such as your page likes, your wall posts and your pictures. And so our app was kind of on the lighter side in terms of the things we collect, which we just wanted the public information. And the other thing that at that time the app allowed us to do is to collect similar data about your friends whose privacy settings permitted this. And so we would also get name, age, gender, location of your friends. What was your interest in this? I got really interested in trying to understand how we could model human behavior through social media because there's residue of who we are and everything we do. And here we had lots of little behaviours that we could use. And how did you start working with Cambridge Analytica? Initially, they just wanted me to help them with some survey consulting. And then the conversation progressed and we started doing a project on Facebook. What sort of project? So the focus uh, of the project was on Americans and the idea was to collect data and to make predictions or best guesses really about how they would answer certain surveys and in particular personality surveys. And this was in 2014. Who approached whom? Uh, They approached me. They've said something entirely different. They have said Alexander Nix, who's now been suspended as the chief executive, says we were approached by an academic who said he had the legitimate and legal wherewithal to collect data on Facebook users that we might be able to use. Is that correct? Uh, In my opinion, that's a fabrication. What happened was they approached me. They wrote the terms of service for the app. They provided the legal advice that this was all appropriate. How did you then go about collecting it? We recruited, I think, around 200,000 people through a survey company called Qualtrics. Each person was paid to do the survey and to authorize the app. 
and each person was presented with specific data we were going to try to collect and also a terms of service that SEL had drafted for us that detailed exactly the commercial terms of the project. So they knew that they were signing over their data for commercial purposes? Uh, that's my understanding. They communicated that this would be a fully commercial project and that the terms of service would be ones that allowed sort of a broad license for usage. What about the data of their friends? Uh, same thing. I mean, it was their view that this was an appropriate project. I mean, what was communicated to me strongly is that thousands and maybe ten, tens of thousands of apps were doing the exact same thing and that this was a pretty normal use case and a normal situation for usage of Facebook data. But the people, the Facebook users who were agreeing to let you use their data for commercial reasons, were they also agreeing to that for their friends' data? That certainly was my understanding of what was communicated to me. Have you not gone back and checked the details given the huge row over all of this in recent days? Yeah. So that, that is still my understanding, but the, I think the legal situation is nuanced. Um, and like, I don't want to misstate mis, uh, anything at all in terms of how the, it all works. But the, my understanding is that we were completely within the, the limits and the, the rights of the agreements that we had. And how many profiles did you end up with from those 200,000 people? In terms of data we provided to SEL, it was 30 million people, and they were all Americans based on self-report. And how did Cambridge Analytica use that data? Honestly, I don't know. I was never part of the subsequent process. Certainly, I've read many reports, just like everybody else has, but I have no way of actually firsthand knowing any of that. Facebook are now saying that you violated their platform policies when you passed the information that you got from there to Cambridge Analytica. I mean, Why are you honestly, saying that's that not is, correct? I mean, like, I'm honestly stunned by most of this. This has never been my understanding. The, like, the events of the past week have been a total shell shock. And my view is that I'm being basically used as a scapegoat by both Facebook and Cambridge Analytica when, honestly, the, we thought we were acting perfectly appropriately. We, we thought we were doing something that was really normal, and we were assured by Cambridge Analytica that like, everything was perfectly legal and within the limits of the terms of service. But you're a highly knowledgeable, highly skilled person. Are you saying you totally relied on information that Cambridge Analytica gave you and didn't ask questions of yourself about this huge amount of data, 30 million profiles that you had gathered? One of the, the great mistakes I did here was I just didn't ask enough questions. I mean, I had never done a commercial project. And I had, didn't really have any reason to doubt their sincerity. That's certainly something I strongly regret now. I mean, the, you know, I was doing the project for free. I didn't have money to go get a lawyer. I would have certainly done that in retrospect. But the, You were doing the project for free? I've never profited from this in any way personally. But you were paid by Cambridge Analytica, money. weren't you? Your company was paid by Cambridge so, Analytica. So they provided resources to pay for the cost of the data collection. Which was how much? Somewhere between seven and $800,000. So your company was paid close to a million dollars for its Facebook data set. Yes, but it, to, to just to be clear where this goes, this money was paid mostly to Qualtrics directly for the participants because each person it would cost 3 to $4, and so that's where really the money went. Do you think you've done anything wrong? 
I think the only thing I really did wrong was not ask enough questions. There's nothing that I've seen that would lead me to believe there was any violation of any policies. You say that you don't know how your data set was used. It was this large data set of Americans. If it turns out it was used in the American presidential uh, campaign, how will that make you feel? Absolutely horrible. Uh, Mr. Trump is not somebody whose values align well with mine. And at the same time, though, the, I know that it probably wasn't helpful. The, the accuracy of this data has been extremely exaggerated. In practice, my best guess is that we were six times more likely to get everything wrong about a person as we were to get everything right about a person. Like, I personally don't think micro-targeting is an effective way to use such data sets. Alexander Kogan. Well, we put Dr. Kogan's version of events to Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Facebook insisted that he had violated its platform policies by transferring the data his app collected to Cambridge Analytica. It also said he'd specifically assured Facebook that the data would never be used for commercial purposes. Uh, Cambridge Analytica didn't respond specifically to the claims. Uh, Let's talk to our technology correspondent Zoe Kleiman, who joins us uh, on the line uh, now. Dr. Kogan sounded a bit vague on on what happened back in uh, 2014 over the legality of all this. Um, surely it was pretty clear cut. I mean, either it was OK to do this or it wasn't. Yeah, it's, it was very interesting to, to hear him say that because in some ways he's right. The way Facebook was set up in 2014, um, anyone that was building an, an app or a game or whatever for that platform, it, it was uh, opened up in a way that they could harvest the data of, um, as he said, of the people using the app and their friends, those who had their privacy settings left locked down. And everyone was doing it. All, all the developers were doing it. It was a great way of harvesting data, essentially, You know, which is worth money because it can be used to drive advertisers to their target audience. So what he was doing there was absolutely within Facebook's terms and conditions and not uncommon at the time. Um, the issue at, at is, is absolutely in the sharing of that data. And, and then we come to the next biggest question, which is who does it belong to? The people that took part in that quiz and, and indeed their friends, you know, they were giving the data to Facebook. They were not knowingly giving it to developers or indeed to people developers decided to sell it on to. And I think, you know, what was interesting about that tape was that $800,000 changed hands at some point. And, and that really is, is a very difficult situation to justify. Is it illegal? Well, no, nothing was actually stolen. Nothing was hacked. Everything was carried out above board. But whether or not you should be selling data that doesn't belong to you, that's another matter. As someone who follows this industry closely, does this feel like a watershed moment to you? It's been so interesting to see the response um, from from not only the industry itself, but also from the public. It's like there's been an enormous uh, in moment of enlightenment, I suppose, where people have suddenly realised that, you know, if you're using a product that is free to use, then that means you are the product. And what that means is that everything you give it, all the data, all the all the personal information about yourself is going to be used for that for that business to make money. You know, let's not forget Facebook, social networks, apps on your phone that want permission to see your contact, all the rest of it. They're all making money. They're not making these things for us just because they want to. And and I think people have just never really thought about it before. And it's only now we're seeing a situation where a load of personal data has, has really spiraled out of control. It's left Facebook servers. It's gone to somebody else's servers. Then it's gone to somebody else's servers. And it's still very unclear, isn't it, whether Cambridge Analytica still has it or not. 
Um, the UK Information Officer Commissioner, sorry, has said that she wants a search warrant to search their servers. Facebook had also said it wanted to search their servers. Nobody's quite sure what's happened to this 30 million uh, people's data. And that is a worrying thing. Uh, and in the 30 seconds we've got left, um, Zoe, I mean, is it a danger moment, though, for, for, for Facebook, particularly with these claims of political interference? Yeah, I mean, Facebook has always has never wanted to be a publisher, you know, and, and with, with publishing comes responsibility. So it's not going to want that. Where this could really hit it is financially, because if it is found guilty of a data breach, the US and the UK and probably other countries as well will be looking to impose hefty fines for that. Zoe, many thanks. That was our technology correspondent, Zoe Kleiman. We'll have more on this story after the news at half past. Uh, we're going to be talking to a British MP who sits on the Digital uh, Committee of Parliament. Uh, as I say, that's coming up in about 15 minutes' time. You're listening to News Out from the BBC World Service. Still to come on the programme, leaders from 44 African countries have signed a free trade deal for the continent. But the BBC's Africa business correspondent Matt Davis uh, tells us work is still needed to implement it. It's going to take a long time for it to go from paper to actually making a difference on the ground. Actually a truck load of stuff making its way from, say, Nairobi to Abuja without incurring any tariffs, any quotas, all that sort of thing. So there's a long way to go, but it is a tentative first step. Our other headlines, Nigerian officials say more than 100 schoolgirls abducted last month by Boko Haram militants have now been released, but five are thought to have died. More on that coming up in a few minutes. And um, American media have named the suspect behind a series of bomb attacks in Texas as Mark Anthony Condit, a local man in his early 20s. More on that too towards the end of the programme. This is the BBC in London. You're listening to News Hour with James Menendez. Security in schools is, of course, not just an issue for the United States in the wake of a series of deadly shootings. It's a concern around the world. In India, many classrooms already have cameras in them. But some schools are going further and putting GPS trackers on students. A step too far? Rahul Tandon reports. We've got some breaking news coming in from Kolkata where massive protests have broken outside a school in Kolkata. This is over the alleged sexual assault of a class... Over the past few months, there's been lots of stories like this one on the news here in India. It's led to a nationwide debate about security at schools and it means many of them are having conversations like this one. On the dashboard screen, you uh, see the list of all the students you want to track... Uh, You can track them individually as well if you click on the tracking link and find out where their exact location is. Works perfectly for security purposes. In light of the recent incidents, uh, how many students can we track at one go? As many as you want, uh, as uh, much as the database permits. Let's let them get on with that discussion. But you get a sense there of how technology is now being used in schools here to track students. Partha Biswas is an IT millionaire from Silicon Valley. He's now come back to India and it's his technology that is being used in lots of schools. Schools are looking at uh, having bus video live streamed to parents so that they know exactly what's happening to the kid when they're in the bus. And they also want to know exactly where the kid is. So we have GPS ID cards which tracks the kid exactly where he is in the campus and outside. Do you think the use of this sort of technology is going to be pretty common in schools 
it's more about liability, yes. We have to be careful not to step on civil liberties. We leave it up to the user to make sure that they use it in the right way. So schools here are embracing technology to make sure that pupils like the ones in this playground remain safe. But what about the issue of privacy and how far are they willing to go? I've come to speak to Dr. Anuradha Das, who's been a head teacher in Kolkata for more than 20 years. Safety, security is number one in my agenda. Everything else can follow. So there is CCTV and I'm continuously watching, as you can see. We can see the CCTV behind you there where you can monitor what's happening. Would you look at things like GPS trackers on students so you could actually track them moving around the school? Why not? If it's a question of their security, then why not? By eight thumbs up. I've left the school and come to a cafe that's popular with students because not everyone is happy with these plans. Rakesh and Seema go to a school that tried to track their pupils. My school did something like that and we were really against it. They made us walk around with ID cards and it like we don't know who's going to be using it. It might not just be your teachers. I don't think the school should have the right to track students. Children will be children. Obviously they won't be the exact place that they're scheduled to or whatever but that's the whole point of it to have some freedom, some fun, to violate some rules within school obviously. I mean that you're just taking away their childhood. The bell has gone here at South Point School, one of the largest in the world, and parents are waiting to pick up their kids. So what do they make of GPS tracking? Definitely tracking a teacher or a student is not a good thing to do. But then at the end of the day, the child's security is at stake. You're infringing into the privacy of the of the student. You know, it's like almost putting a collar around a, you know, a pet. I don't think it's an invasion of privacy, especially as far as security is concerned. I don't know because you can go in the wrong hands. So trackers may not always be helpful and can just take it off. It's not inserted in your body. All the children are now safely with their parents and heading home. To ensure that that continues to happen, it looks like more schools in India are going to track their students with technology. Ral Tandon reporting there from Kolkata. To some good news now from northeast Nigeria, scene of a long-running insurgency by the Islamist group Boko Haram and several high-profile kidnappings of schoolgirls, the Chibok girls most famously. Well, last month, another group of 110 schoolgirls were abducted by militants in the town of Dachi. Today, most of them were returned by Boko Haram. Their parents said the militants brought them to Dachi in a motorcade. Uh, the BBC's Mayani Jones is in Lagos with more details. So far, we know uh, the government says it's managed to secure the release of 76 of the 110 schoolgirls that were kidnapped uh, about six weeks ago on the 19th of February. Now, the girls have told some of the parents in Dapshi that we've spoken to that unfortunately five of their companions died whilst in captivity. Um, The government says that it's still um, trying to account for some of the girls that may still uh, be missing. But we're hearing reports that early this morning, four trucks uh, delivered uh, the 76 girls near Dapshi, and shortly thereafter they were taken to hospital for medical checkups. So, some still in captivity. How was the release of the, the 76 secured? Um, I mean, I guess the question is was a ransom paid? 
Yeah, um, the government says that it has not paid a ransom. Uh, it said, you mentioned earlier, uh, the, ch- the kidnapping of the Chibok girls in 2014, which many people have been comparing to this kidnapping. At the time, the government had also said that it hadn't exchanged any money for some of the girls that have been released. Um, it said it traded Boko Haram fighters this time round. The government hasn't told us how it was able to secure the release of these girls. Analysts suspect that they must have traded uh, something quite valuable to Boko Haram, but it's unclear what that may be just yet. Uh, and what's the bigger picture here in terms of Boko Haram? Because there was this split, wasn't there, in in the group. Is this a different group to the group that uh, kidnapped the Chibok girls? And is that perhaps why uh, most of them have come back? Yeah, they have a different leader this time around. And it does seem that um, by releasing these girls, they're showing a willingness uh, to negotiate with the government. The, the release was, um, they managed to get re- the girls released after six weeks, which is quite um, quick, quite a quick turnaround. The only worry, though, is um, this willingness may um, mask a, a desire to try and get favorable terms for them. So the worry is that because they were able to somehow negotiate with the government and, and presumably get quite a favourable deal, nothing's to stop them from doing this again and perhaps kidnapping members of another community and try and get something else from the government. And what of the the Chibok girls who remain in captivity? Do we know anything about them? Yeah, about um, uh, some of the parents of Chibok were actually in Dapshi uh, yesterday, uh, visiting some of the parents there to lend moral support. Um, the organization Bring Back Our Girls, which campaigned really hard for the release um, of the Chibok school girls, released a statement saying that it was happy to hear the Dapshi girls had been released, but um, still concerned that some of their core requests hadn't been uh, met, including the release of the remaining girl. About 112 girls uh, remain missing. 276 girls were kidnapped in April. 2014 from Chibok. So the Chibok situation is still not released. Uh, the Dapshi situation obviously is a lot more, has a much more positive um, resolution, but we're still waiting for some of the girls that are still missing. Uh, and, and just finally, have the, the parents of the girls in Dapshi, have any of them been talking at all? Yeah, they've been um, talking to us. They say they're very happy. Um, they describe scenes of their neighbours coming to the houses of various of the parents of the girls who'd been kidnapped to congratulate them. Uh, there apparently were scenes of joy in Dapshi this morning as people were kind of jubilant and excited to hear that the girls had been returned. So they're very happy. One of the dads who spoke to his daughter said um, she sounded uh, in good spirit. She said they were hidden somewhere where they couldn't be seen by an airplane um, and that they had to prepare some of their own food. But at their time, but they're well. And that was the BBC's Lagos correspondent, uh, Mayeni Jones, there on uh, that release of uh, 76 out of the 110 schoolgirls who were abducted last month by uh, Boko Haram. You're listening to News Air from the BBC World Service. Uh, do stay with us. We've got a lot more to come in the next half hour, including more on our top story, the Facebook data round. We're going to be talking to a British MP from the governing Conservative Party who sits on a committee that's already summoned the Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg to appear. But will he attend? And uh, do stay tuned for that. You're listening to News Hour with James Menendez. Now, leaders from 44 African countries uh, have signed a free trade deal for the continent. The agreement will create one of the world's biggest trade blocks, encompassing more than a billion people. It aims to remove barriers and boost trade within the continent, which is currently at a very low level. However, Africa's largest economy, Nigeria, has pulled out of the deal. Uh, Matt Davis is the BBC's Africa business reporter. He told me why this was an agreement that would prove much more difficult in practice. 
The trouble and the devil is in the detail and implementation of this. So it's going to take a long time for it to go from paper to actually making a difference on the ground. Actually, a truck load of stuff making its way from, say, Nairobi to Abuja without incurring any tariffs, any quotas, all that sort of thing. So there's a long way to go, but it is a tentative first step. How much trade is there between African countries rather than from Africa to and from the rest of the world, if you like? Intra-African trade only counts for about 16% of the total trade in Africa. And most African nations actually do more trade with the outside world than they do with each other. And this is a kind of a hangover from colonial times where people just used to come to the continent, get the raw materials and leave. And this is kind of what is still going on. And this is why the level of intra-African trade is so low compared to, say, Asia, where it's 51%, and, of course, Europe, where it's 70%. This free trade area aims to boost that, but then there needs to be the infrastructure to be able to boost that. So there needs to be manufacturing capability in African countries. At the moment, not many have really solid manufacturing bases. South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, the big economies seem to have that. But some of the others, all they have is raw materials and they don't trade raw materials with each other. In other words, a truckload of copper from Zambia isn't going to be sold in Tanzania because the Tanzanians don't have the capacity to do much with it. It leaves the continent and goes straight to places like China. You mentioned uh, Nigeria, Africa's largest economy. It's pulled out, though, at the last minute. Why? Another stumbling block to this whole agreement, yes, Uh, President Buhari basically turned around on on his way to the airport the other day and uh, said he won't be going to Kigali to sign this agreement. And that's because there hasn't been consultations with the various stakeholders in Nigeria, business and particularly the unions. A lot of unions, and not just in Nigeria, across Africa, have a problem with this, and especially in the stronger economies, because they think that this uh, treaty will lead to Uh, The free movement of workers, which, of course, means that workers from anywhere in Africa can come into their economies. And essentially, they're worried that those workers will be in the position to um, undercut and and basically steal domestic jobs. It's a fear that a lot of the, the unions have in these strong economies. And they wanted to say to President Buhari, wait a minute, you've got to talk to us before we even let you go and sign this. That was our Africa business reporter, Matt Davis, uh, speaking to me from Johannesburg. You're listening to News from the BBC. I'm James Menendez. Let's return now to our main story, the Facebook data round. The company's coming under growing pressure from politicians and regulators on both sides of the Atlantic to explain its role in the affair and how it's going to safeguard the privacy of its users. The founder, Mark Zuckerberg, has been summoned to appear before a British parliamentary committee. I've been talking to one of its members, Conservative MP Simon Hart. First of all, does he expect Mr Zuckerberg to actually turn up before the committee? Well, interesting question. I mean, there's two schools of thought, which is one is he'll run a mile and the other is actually he's got a golden opportunity to restate Facebook's case, repair its uh, reputation and to uh, get back on the front foot. So we'll see. Hopefully he will, but I wouldn't be completely surprised if he was busy that day. Uh, If he does turn up, uh, what would you ask him? 
I think what's emerged in the last few days, uh, and indeed last few weeks, to be honest, is what seems to me to be sort of lack of awareness by Facebook as the full extent to which it is alleged that their data is being harvested, the way it's being used, the manner in which it's being used to micro-target individual groups in elections around the world. And when we've taken evidence off them in, in the UK as well as in Washington, we just get the impression they don't really know. And they're all very vague, and it's, well, we'll get back to you, which they then never do. Uh, there's a significant amount of lack of clarity about really what the extent of their data harvesting exercise is, who has access to it, what happens when they finish with it, uh, and the manner in which members of the public are being uh, having their information used for political purposes. Is that naivety or is it a deliberate lack of clarity because the firm doesn't want to look too deeply into these questions? I mean, I think that's you know question number one to Mark uh, Zuckerberg, isn't it? Because you would think an organisation of that you know, phenomenal global reach, um, hoovering up millions of uh, items of data and um, revenue in the process. You would think that that is the one question they would have really, really clear and concise answers about. And yet, whenever we have um, managed to speak face-to-face to them on these related issues, we get a very polite but rather confused answers about, well, no, we're not absolutely sure. We'll, as I say, we, you know, when we're in Washington, it was, we'll come back to you, we, we'll come back to you, we'll, we, we don't know the answer, we'll come back to you. Well, that was months ago. We've never heard back from them. Have, now, have, they, have they lost control then of all that data that's on their servers? Well, I, I, you know, that, if you're putting words into my mouth, but actually I'm quite happy happy to uh, go along with that uh, to a great extent because uh, whichever way you look at this you know whether it's deliberate or whether it's accidental there is no doubt in my mind as a as a layman observing these things from from a distance that they just don't know what uh, is going on as far as their data is concerned. And I'm not sure they really want to know. So is it time to regulate Facebook as we regulate plenty of other old media? This is a question frequently asked. It seems to me perfectly reasonable that online media should be treated in exactly the same way as offline media. This is not about creating new standards or new levels of um, regulation. It's about catching up with technology. It's about aligning anything which is going on in an online capacity with the, the standards and, and levels of regulation that we are absolutely accept as a country exists for broadcasters and for print media. There is all sorts of squealing and resistance to that. But unless we can be reassured that individual items of data are not being misused and that these systems are not being used to manipulate in an underhand way the outcome of um, the sort of process of democracy, then that could be the only option we have left. Are you worried that uh, you were talking about micro-targeting? Are you worried that that, that played a part in the debate over Brexit in this country? Well, part of the problem, what, what worries me is that nobody really knows. We've had conflicting evidence on, on our committee, you know, people are part of the Vote Leave campaign saying that they definitely hired um, Cambridge Analytica as an example of a company in the news at the moment. Cambridge Analytica saying they definitely weren't hired and all sorts of rather confusing contradictions as far as that's concerned. But yeah, when we were in the States the other day, I got the impression from witnesses we had there that they, they were uh, astonished that we didn't, hadn't accepted that this is already happening. And um, the law is woefully behind technology in this respect. And I don't think we do know what, uh, what's going on. And that was Simon Hart, who's an um, MP for the governing Conservative Party here in the UK and sits on that committee that has summoned uh, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Now, to a tricky question, how would you react if three of your children were killed in an incident by a tank shell? 
And if it happened just three months after your wife, their mother, had died from leukaemia, well, many of us would probably fall apart, unable to cope with such unimaginable, unbearable tragedy. But this is precisely what happened to Palestinian gynaecologist Dr. Izaldin Aboyleish in Gaza in 2009, when part of his house was destroyed by an Israeli tank during the three-week conflict of that time. And yet, Dr. Aboyleish hasn't fallen apart. Quite the opposite. He's made a new life for himself and his remaining children in Canada and turned his tragedy into a powerful plea for reconciliation. The BBC reported on what happened to Dr. Aboyleish at the time. He was also well known to Israeli TV viewers during the conflict because of his friendship and interviews with one reporter. In fact, after the attack on his house, straight after, he called him live on air, partly to summon medical help for the injured. Well, here he has been interviewed by us in the days after. They are sitting there, four daughters, two nieces, in their own room. And I started to play with my youngest child, whom I carried on my shoulders. Just seconds after I left their room, the first bomb. I started to scream, looking at them, bodies, bars, here, there, the heads... What can I do at that time? Well, Dr. Aboelish came into the news hour studio a little earlier today. I began by asking him what he remembered of the day his daughters were killed. It lives with me. It runs with me. I see my daughters. I talk to them. And on a daily basis, I am reminded, because the situation in the Gaza Strip is the same situation and the suffering, and I see it in everyday suffering in this part of the world, in Syria, in Yemen, in Afghanistan. I see in these children, my daughters, to remind me and to live with me all of the time. And my daughters who are asking me, what did you do for us? Did you forget us? I say to them, I will never forget you. I am determined to keep moving. The tragedy is there. Tragedies are not the end of our life, and we must not allow tragedies to be the end of our life. And thanks God, we succeeded. Do you remember the the panic, though, in those immediate moments afterwards? Uh, and, and also you, your thought processes that led you to ring your Israeli friend, because that's a, a crucial part of what happened afterwards, isn't it? Of course, at that moment, we were under fear, under attacks from everywhere. We are expecting the worst all of the time. But thanks God to give me the wisdom and to think rational at that moment and to direct my face to God and to call my friend who was supposed to interview me. So I called him to expose the secret and to show that there are human civilians who are killed on daily basis and to put an end to this tragedy. At that point, there was all, it was also about getting some medical help for the rest of your family, wasn't it? Who were severely wounded, my daughter, my niece, my brother, and the others who were under threat. So I asked to stop the shelling and to take them to the Palestinian hospitals and then from there to be transferred to the Israeli hospital where I used to work. And what sort of reception did you get when you ended up in those Israeli hospitals? I mean, was there sympathy, great sympathy? Of course, it opened the eyes of the Israeli public about the human face of the Palestinian people. But do we need to be killed in order to show the others that we are human? We are neighbors, and we need to live as neighbors, as equal human beings, and that a human life of the Palestinian is equal to the human life of the Israelis. Why do you think your house was shelled? 
from my side, there is no reason to be killed, my daughters, or to be targeted. We are human civilians sitting in our home. There was no reason. Have you had an apology from Israel for what happened? That's the most painful part. Last March, we went there to testify at the court, and my daughter, who was severely wounded, and she lost the sight in her right eye. When they asked her, how do you feel? She said, I feel in pain, as if I am killed another time, to prove that I am a victim. And we are asking just for apology. Why? What does it signify, that apology? Is it an acknowledgement of acknowledgement the, ter- the of terrible mistake that, that we are happened? human that they are human beings, to give them the dignity and the right of apology, the acknowledgement of their existence. So why do you think it hasn't happened, given how high profile your case has been? You need to ask the politicians, the leaders. We need that courage to acknowledge and to respect and to value human life and to have that moral courage to say we made a mistake. We take responsibility, we apologize for what happened, and then we all, we can move forward. I moved forward and my daughters are kept alive through good deeds and the spreading hope in a time of despair in this world. And how have you managed to maintain that hope? How did you stop it turning to hate? Was it a conscious effort? Of course, it's a conscious effort because as a medical doctor, the only impossible thing I believe in is to return my daughters back. I can't return them back, but I can keep them alive. And I see them while I am talking to you. I see them. They are in front of me. It's my faith, which helped me a lot. Did you feel the hate bubbling up on occasion? I will never feel. And I say to people, if you face any tragedy, if you face any harm from anyone, don't allow hatred to approach you. Hatred is destructive, contagious disease to the one who carries it. Hatred is a poison. We need to be strong in order to move forward. Do you see any hope at the moment in the Middle East? There seems to be very little common understanding between the two sides. They seem as far apart as they have ever been. They are far apart, but both are alive. And that's the hope. In medicine, as long as the patient is still alive, there is hope. And the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Middle East, the people there are alive. But it needs the wisdom and the international community and all of the people to work together from violence to inclusiveness, to partnership and sharing, and to understand that the human life and the freedom is the most precious thing. But do you think, though, that people on both sides have stopped seeing the other side as human beings? We need justice. And justice means putting yourself in the position of the others. And when we speak about both sides, both sides are not equal. We need to equalize between them, the Palestinians and the Israelis, because the Palestinians are suffering on a daily basis. We need to equalize between them and to live as good neighbors, as equal citizens in independent states. We need to humanize, not to politicize. We are disconnected. How close are we as neighbors, but we are far from each other? See my Israeli friends who live in Ashkelon, close to Gaza Strip. They don't know what is happening in Gaza Strip, which is a disaster. Can you sleep and your neighbor is hungry? Can you eat? Can you do run a normal life and your neighbor without electricity, without freedom, And our neighbors are disconnected from what is happening in the Gaza Strip. And the world also is watching what is happening. And that was Dr. Hizaldin Abouelesh speaking to me a little earlier today. You're listening to News from the BBC World Service. Do sit with us.
reminder of our main story today on NewsHour. An academic at the centre of the Facebook data rouse says he's been made a scapegoat for both uh, the social media company and the data mining firm Cambridge Analytica, which is accused of misusing the data. Alexander Kogan created the app uh, that was used to harvest the information from millions of users. He says Cambridge Analytica assured him that the data would be handled appropriately. What was communicated to me strongly is that thousands and maybe tens of thousands of apps were doing the exact same thing and that this was a pretty normal use case and a normal situation for usage of Facebook data. And one other headline this hour. Nigerian officials say more than 100 schoolgirls abducted last month by Boko Haram militants have now been released, but five are thought to have died. This is NewsHour with James Menendez. A study commissioned by the Vatican found that 70% of young people here in the UK, aged between 16 and 29, say they are of no religion. The uh, Europe-wide research found a similar picture in the Netherlands and Sweden. In contrast, around 80% of young people in Poland and about 60% in Ireland say they do have a religion. Professor John Haldane is Professor of Philosophy at the University of St Andrews in Scotland uh, and a former advisor to the Vatican. I asked him whether he was surprised by the results. No, not really. I think much of it sort of conforms to what one already knows, really. I mean, the difference between, for example, Northern Europe and uh, Southern or Mediterranean Europe is one thing, and of course, Central Europe again. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, to understand this, I would say that it's important to see that Christianity is uh, really a historical tradition. And um, as with many traditions, once you kind of lose contact with it, you don't get the instruction, there isn't the narrative, you don't have the practice, say, in the home, uh, then um, it will fade away. And and I think that's uh, what we're seeing here. This is The causes of this really go back a couple of generations. It's that weakening of the relationship within the family and between the family, the community, and the church, and so on, where people had these... This instruction was given, repeated in the home, repeated at school, repeated at church. The narratives were played out and the practices were sustained. So I think we're just seeing this uh, breakdown of a tradition. So in other words, children aren't uh, doing what their parents, or perhaps not their parents, what their grandparents Mm. did. Those practices aren't being passed down. That's right, yeah. And the sort of triangular fix here between a community... Uh, school and home, uh, communities and school, uh, home and church. Um, I think that that was once much stronger than it is. And uh, this was kind of mutually reinforcing. But yes, I think that's the best way of thinking about it. Think of Christianity. It's not really an abstract philosophical theory. It's a, it's a, a set of historical claims. It's a set of practices. These are handed on. And of course, if they're not handed on, or only they're handed on in parts or in fragments that don't really cohere or make very much sense, then we shouldn't be surprised uh, if people uh, let go of them. But also, of course, at the same time, they're getting other new sources of moral guidance and moral focus. It's also a faith, though. And if overall a majority of young people in a dozen countries say they don't follow a religion, uh, does that mean that Europe is becoming steadily more secular? And And does that matter? Well, <laughs> I suppose it depends for the perspective you view this from. I mean, the um, I mean, the temporal perspective, as it were. From the point of view of eternity, I have no idea whether it matters or not. <laughs> from the point of view of decades or well, centuries... For, for, for European society, do, yeah. do, does it matter? 
I, I think in one, even from the point of view of somebody who, who might not themselves be religious or be particularly sensitive to a religious viewpoint, it's unquestionably the case that many of our cultural and intellectual institutions and social institutions have their roots in Christianity. Um, and as those foundations are eroded, it may well be that some of those institutions themselves uh, are somewhat put in peril. I'll just give you an example of this. The idea of universal human rights, although it sounds like a secular invention, really rests on the idea of the universality of humankind, that in some deep and profound sense all human beings are equal. Now, we know that isn't true in any empirical or scientific sense. Um, it might be true from a religious point of view, but if you kick away that religious idea, then the notion of the universality of human dignity or the universality of human rights and so on may be difficult to sustain. So there's a reason why somebody might be concerned that this will have further uh, cultural and ethical implications. Uh, just briefly, we haven't got much time left. I mean, can, uh, say, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, can it do anything to, to reverse this or is this just going to continue for, for well, more I think generations? To some ex- sorry, yeah, I think to some extent this is a cultural historical trend, though what we find now is that historical cultural trends can be reversed rather quickly and surprisingly. We've seen that in the 20th century. But I would say the churches, if they want to try to address this, it's to get back to their core business and that, as it were, is addressing the question of the nature of the human condition and you know, the meaning of life. And young people actually are, by the way, at the same time, troubled by things like increasing levels of depression, isolation, self-harm, suicide, and so on. So everything isn't altogether happy in the new secular society, and the churches might probe the ground and cause of that unhappiness. Professor John Haldane. Now, media in the U.S. have named the man believed to have carried out a string of bomb attacks in Texas. Uh, 23-year-old Mark Anthony Condit, police say he died after detonating a device inside his car while they were chasing him. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue is in Austin, Texas. He's been taking me through what happened today. Well, it appears in the early hours of this morning, just uh, close to where I am here by I-35, which is the, the interstate that runs down the length of Texas through the middle of Austin, they tracked... Uh, this man down to a hotel very close to the, to the actual motorway. Uh, they called for some backup, but he drove off and they followed him and he pulled into the ditch at the side uh, of the interstate. Uh, police fired on him once and at this point he seems to have detonated a bomb inside his car uh, which killed him. Uh, now, police haven't named him yet, but we understand from local law, law enforcement that uh, he's a 23-year-old man called Mark Anthony Condit. Uh, no more details known about him yet, uh, but uh, the police will be working on what, what his motivation was, because if you bear in mind, he's, de- he's de- de- delivered six bombs, uh, five of which went off in the last three weeks, killing two people, and he's injured uh, a half dozen more quite seriously. So the investigation is continuing, and what the police also have said is that because they don't know where he was for the last 24 hours, they're concerned there still be, might still be more devices out there, perhaps in, in the post. Have they given any clues as to what might have motivated? I mean, in the early days, there were some suggestions this was uh, some sort of hate crime that was then discredited. Uh, a- a- anything from the police on that? No, no, nothing as yet. And just from a sort of initial combing of, of social media, uh, we can't see anything immediate that leaps out from from some pretty obvious places. 
in terms of his motivation. Uh, it does appear that he may have been homeschooled. Uh, now, whether that has a factor or not, I don't know. Uh, but nothing, nothing at this stage. And of course, the fact that he was be, he was able to produce these uh, actually pretty effective bombs uh, in such a short period of time, a sort of you know had some sort of conveyor belt going here, uh, will raise questions about what his background was. People were suggesting there may have been a military background. That doesn't seem to be obvious from the from what we've seen initially on on postings etc uh, it looks like he, he graduated about five years ago it's not very clear what he's been doing uh, in the last five years since uh, since he graduated from a sort of equivalent of high school and that was the bbc's uh, gary o'donoghue talking to us from uh, austin in texas and that brings us to the end of this edition of news Ephraim and the rest of the team here in london thanks so much for being with us until the next time bye-bye <laughs>